0: Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show on Near fm My name is Cahill Brennan, and on this episode, myself and my co-presenter, John Dorney, are going to talk about the Sean Hales assassination. If you want to listen to previous episodes of the show, go to our website, IrishHistoryShow.ie, like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show, or Twitter at Irish History Pod. So, John, we recently had an anniversary there, which was the Sean Hales assassination. Now, could you give us an idea who Sean Hales was?
1: Yeah, so Sean Hales, the TD who was assassinated on December 7th, 1922, was a prominent member of the Republican movement. He came from a very distinguished family of West Cork Republicans. So his brother, Tom Hales, was also a leading IRA figure in West Cork, in the 3rd Cork Brigade of the IRA, um, also in Sinn Féin. The Hales family were the mainstays, really, of um, the uh, volunteers in the early days of the volunteer movement down in, in West Cork. Um, During the Easter Rising they were arrested, Sean escaped arrest initially, he was later found by the police and he was interned in Van Gogh in Wales. Um, They came back and uh, they organised in a way typical of volunteers around the country, land agitation, they organised resistance to conscription, they organised Sinn Féin for the election of 1918 and they organised the volunteers who after the election of the Dáil and the declaration of the Irish Republic became the Irish Republican Army, the IRA Sean was the head of the brigade initially. He kind of fell out of active service, if you, if you like, as the War of Independence went on. His brother, Tom, was captured and badly tortured by the uh, Essex Regiment, by the British Army, in Bandon. Sean, interestingly, in a, some of his obituaries, mistakenly said he was present at engagements like the Upton Ambush and the Crossfire Ambush. Actually, he was not. Uh, by that time, the active service unit, the flying column of the 3rd Brigade, in Cork was commanded by Tom Barry but Sean Hales remained a prominent figure at the time of the treaty split Tom Hales who was the more active brother up until his capture in July 1920 and um, took the anti-treaty side uh, Sean took the pro-treaty side now like many pro-treaty figures not because really because of any tendency towards moderation but more because he was within the orbit of Michael Collins and Collins great strength is my ma- magnetic personality pulled in a lot of people around him. Sean Hales was one of those people. So Hales was actually on the run uh, from the anti-treaty side. I'm not sure if his life was in danger, but he was one of uh, a minority of, of Cork pro-treaty Republicans, pro-treaty IRA men, and he joined the National Free State Army when they arrived in Cork at the landings uh, on the Cork coast in August 1922. And while there were actually very few Cork men in the National Army initially, Sean Hales became a brigadier in the National Army, And he led troops in Cork. He was also had been elected as a TD, a pro-Treaty TD, in the election of June 1922. So by late 1922, Sean Hales was attending the Dáil in in Dublin. He he was still wearing the uniform of the National Army, but he doesn't seem to have had an active command Mm -hmm. in the National Army. The Dáil met for the first time during the Civil War in September 1922, and it met quite regularly thereafter. Sean Hales seems to have been in Dublin quite a lot. So Sean Hales was actually very well regarded within the IRA, including the anti-treaty IRA, partly because his brother, Tom, was, was a leading figure in the anti-treaty IRA in Cork. Also, his other brother, Donald, was an envoy for the Republican side in Italy, in, in Europe, but specifically in Italy, and he had been before the truce as well. So Hales was not a particular uh, anti-treaty hate figure, but by no means. Uh, unlike others like, say, Richard Mulcahy or other IRB men like uh, um, Dermot O'Hegarty, or Garret the people the anti-Treaty has blamed for the civil war, the what they thought of as an IRB clique. Sean Hales wasn't part of that clique, but as we'll see, he was basically
0: in the wrong place at the wrong time. So that period now that we're talking about when Hales is assassinated in December 1922. Um, how intense is the fighting in Dublin? Okay, so by this period in Dublin, and you
1: see this around the country, the pro-Treaty side, the National Army, was getting on top of the anti-Treaty guerrillas. Um, There was a number of major attacks in Dublin in November in the previous month, an attack on Wellington Barracks where 18 soldiers were shot. Not all of them were killed, but quite a number shot. There were two attacks on the uh, CID headquarters at Oriel House. The CID was the detective division, including an attempt to blow it up, you know, with a substantial force of anti-treaty guys attacking it. Um, There was an assassination attempt on uh, Richard Mulcahy at his his residence at Portobello Barracks in Rathmines. It was of considerable intensity. There would have been street ambushes daily. But by this period, as I said, the, the pro-Treatyites were beginning to get on top by weight of numbers, by constant attrition of arrests. And Liam Lynch, who was the IRA chief of staff, anti-Treaty IRA chief of staff, had switched from kind of a military campaign by this point to like an economic campaign. So he'd issued orders that people were, they were to stop people paying tax to the Free State, they were to find people who did pay tax to the Free State, they were to assassinate people who collected tax for the Free State, they were to burn down income tax offices... So, a lot of the IRA strategy switched from, like, more military attacks to more kind of economic attacks, burning down offices, burning down infrastructure, wrecking roads, wrecking bridges. But the key background to the Hales assassination is the government, in in response, really, to this kind of ongoing endemic guerrilla warfare, they passed the Public Safety Act, so-called. And we can get into the legalities of that later, if, if you like. Passed the Public Safety Act in the dawn in September 1922. It came into force in... October actually, but the first executions under it, the Public Safety Act allowed for the executions of anti-Treaty fighters captured after that date. So the first executions were in Dublin in November. There was um, there were three men executed in Kilmainham, three young men, uh, followed by Erskine Childers, who was executed in Beggars Bush barracks, and then another four anti-Treatyites executed after that. So there's eight executions that have taken place in quick succession in Dublin. And this is the really key background behind the assassination of Sean Hayes, because Liam Lynch, was the chief of staff of the anti-treaty IRA, up until this point, he hasn't authorised political assassinations. He says he, he instructed his fighters that you can't kill people who were alleged informers, as we did before the truce, he said, against the British. He said that was a different war. He said we can't shoot off juicy soldiers, which, again, they did before the truce, and you can't kill political figures. Now, this all changed. After the executions, Lynch issued general orders, that members of the murder gang, so this is pro-Treaty soldiers who've killed prisoners, are to be assassinated. Members who voted for the murder bill, so TDs who voted for the Public Safety Act, they're to be assassinated. Their houses are, are to be burnt down. He issued really harsh orders in reprisal. Now, the other key background is the anti-treaty IRA in Dublin, they suffered a lot of blows throughout the Civil War, and in one way they never really got going because they lost probably half their strength in the first couple of weeks of the war at the four courts and the battle afterwards where a lot of people were imprisoned. Up to 500 were imprisoned. And then at what they call the Bridges job in August 1922, they lost another maybe 150, maybe more, captured in an attempt to to destroy the Bridges around Dublin. And there's a constant attrition of arrests afterwards, like Ernie O'Malley, who's the head of the Eastern Division of the Anti-Treaty IRA, is captured in November. Joe Connor, who's the head of 3rd Brigade, which is one of the most active brigades in the city, he's captured. They're kind of trying to organise on the fly with all these arrests happening. And in the Autumn and early winter of 1922, they organised an active service unit, so a full time guerrilla unit, taken from the Dublin Brigades, or Dublin Battalions, excuse me, not the Dublin Brigades. That was linked up just in December 1922 with the intelligence unit of the IRA, and it was nicknamed the Creasing Squad. Now, this is a very ominous thing because what this means is the intelligence department is going to identify people, track them, they're going to give you information to to the so called the Creasing Squad. And they're going to kill them. So, this was in place by the time that Lynch issued these orders. As regards the membership of this, this has only very recently come to light, and um, it came to light in my research for my, my upcoming book on the Civil War in Dublin. There were mostly, uh, uh, according to Bill Rowe, who was the leader of the ASU, the members of the Creasing Squad, the assassination part, were mostly University College Dublin students. One of the leading members was a, man named, a young man named Owen Donnelly, who had recently graduated from O'Connell School, so the Christian Brothers School on the north side. And he lived in the same house as Michael Carlin, Mickey Carlin, he was known in the IRA. He was actually an IRA man from Belfast. Unlike most IRA men, he was with the anti-treaty side. But he was the IRA head of intelligence, and they lived together, they shared intelligence. And it came to them by various means, and according to Bill Rowe, it came from uh, a waitress, I believe, that Poric O'Malley, who was the deputy speaker of the Dáil, the Aracan Corla, or Lascan Corla, as they're known now. I'm not sure they were using that terminology at the time. And Sean Hales had lunch every day in the Ormond Hotel on Ormond Key, and then they drove by taxi, horse taxi in those days, to the Doll, which was already
0: in Esther House, as it is today. Now, had Liam Lynch made made these pronouncements public that the TDs who had voted for the Public Safety Act were under threat of execution? Yes, he had. So Liam Lynch wrote to the, the Speaker of
1: the Doll, the, the Kim Curla, and he, he explicitly said, um, you must resign from the have having voted for the murder bill, retract the murder bill, or you, you face execution. And their publicity department had pa- pasted up proclamations all over Dublin, saying that members of the murder gang and members of the murder members, they called them, people that voted for the murder bill. So this is all the anti treaty terminology were to be killed. So it was posted up all over Dublin. He wrote a letter to the, the Speaker of the Dáil. So he had publicly threatened them, and now they were going to go through with it. They had the information on, particularly on Amalia, Park Amalia from, the TD from Mayo, who was the deputy Speaker. He was the real target of the assassination but actually.
0: Well in your opinion, were Hale's nomalia reckless, or would they have believed that they probably weren't subject to an attempted assassination? Well I think that people didn't immediately believe Lynch. You know, I believe that people were capable
1: of this kind of ruthlessness. And this is a kind of feature of the Irish Civil War. Where you see kind of an opening of the ante of viciousness because people initially won't believe that they're Former comrades are capable of doing this on both sides. So, they so initially, the anti-Treatyites didn't believe the pro-Treatyites were going to go through with the executions, but they did. And in the same way, Pearse, O'Mullion, Sean Hales and the other TDs, no doubt, they thought that the other side really wouldn't go through with with, with what was known as the orders of frightfulness, uh, Lynch's orders. And actually, if you read a lot of the IRA testimony, a lot of them were pretty squeamish about it. A lot of them did not want to go through with these orders. One more thing to note, just before we, we talk about the, the day itself, is that Sean Hales had not actually voted for the, the so-called murder bill for the Public Safety Act, because he wasn't in the doll at the time, he was in Cork, mm-hmm. at the time when, when the Public Safety Act went through. So,
0: it's one of the sad ironies that the, the only TD who was killed actually had not voted for it. Yes, there's many uh, many sad coincidences like that with the Irish Civil War, isn't there? hmm So, actually, on the day of the assassination, what happened? So, as I said, word reached the IRA
1: people that Amalia and Hales had lunch in, in the Ormond Hotel. They had quite a long and allegedly uh, a liquid lunch. I mean, they, they went to lunch at about 12 and they emerged at nearly 3. And could you tell people where the Ormond Hotel is? Yeah, so if you know O'Connell Street in central Dublin and you take a left, and you walk for about 10 minutes on the North Quays, the, the Ormond Hotel is still there, I believe. Mm. But, or that's Ormond Quay there. So right in, right smack in the heart of Dublin, Another t- walk another 10 minutes and you're at the Four Courts and the forecourts would have been in ruins at the time, because of the fighting of the previous July. But it's right smack in the centre of Dublin, along the quays, along the main thoroughfares going along the river. Behind it, at the time, is kind of a warren of little streets. It looks very much like Owen Dollley and another man who is unidentified. It seems to have been a two-man team. They had this information. When Omalia and Hales merged from the Ormond Hotel, they whistled for a taxi. In those days, the taxis were horse-drawn. A man named Kennedy was driving the taxi. Both of them got into the cab. And it so happened, it merely so happened, that Hales was on the side of the cab that was closest to the pavement. So closest to where the gunmen approached. They approached from the direction of Cable Street, I believe. So that would have been two Hales left and from behind him. They opened fire with pistols on the two men. They hit both of them. But Hales was was mortally wounded. He was killed. Kennedy, the man, the taxi driver, he whipped his horses. His horses uh, broke into a ruin. He got as far as O'Connell Street, and he realised that both of, them of his passengers were hit. He was stopped by a, a Dublin policeman, a Dublin metropolitan policeman, as they still were at the time. Meanwhile, uh, another odd coincidence, the British Army at this point had only, I think, nine days left before they evacuated Dublin under the terms of the treaty, but they were still there in Dublin. There were at 6,000 British soldiers. And it so happened that when the two gunmen struck, there was a British armoured car motoring down the quays, and they stopped, and one of the soldiers got out, and he fired some shots with a handgun at the two fleeing gunmen but he didn't hit them uh, they got away people you know as you can imagine the people the pedestrians scattered in all directions you know it was shock but when Kennedy the taxi driver saw that his, his two charges were, were wounded he drove back to the Jervis hospital which is uh, not very far away again if you know Dublin you're looking at maybe a well, two minute ride probably on the on the taxi O'Malley was
0: seriously wounded but not critical and and Hales was dead on arrival so, what was the reaction uh, within the Irish government, the provisional uh, Free State government? At some?
1: Yeah, I, actually, it had just ceased to be the provisional government, technically speaking. So, under the treaty, a year and a day after the treaty, it would be the Free State government. Technicalities aside, uh, the government were shocked. The government probably uh, hadn't realised that the anti-treatyites, or as they call them, the irregulars, would go through with this. And basically, the reaction. We have to Now, one thing to say, we have to read between the lines a little bit, because unlike most other Cabinet discussions, the Cabinet discussions on the response to the Hale's assassination have all been removed from the papers, along with many of the most sensitive documents relating to the Civil War. So, reading between the lines and going on things like uh, Ernest Blythe's witness statement to the Bureau of Military History, the government decided that they needed the strongest possible reprisal, because they figured if the anti-treaty had a prolonged assassination campaign, that their government would collapse, that the free state would be finished. And everything that they fought for, as they saw it, to create an independent Irish state would collapse. So they saw this as a real crisis moment. They were probably quite right in, in that regard, in, in a
0: strictly tactical sense. But well, I wonder as well what type of effect that had on the morale of backbench pro treaty TDs. Well, indeed, actually, I'll come back to that later. But they decided on the
1: the strongest possible response. So, Ernest Blythe, who was, as far as I'm aware, he's the only inside cabinet member who has left us testimony, said he wanted a, a mass trial of prisoners by military court martial. But when he, he arrived late to the cabinet meeting, and he found that Mackay, I think, Richard Mackay, who was the commander in chief of the army and also the minister for defence, or a rather unusual dual role by today's mm-hmm. standards, had proposed to shoot four leading anti-treatyites without further proceedings. In response, basically, to the Sean Hill's assassination, one man who had been captured in the Four Courts back at the start of the Civil War, Rory O'Connor, who had led the Four Courts' takeover, Liam Mellows, who was a leading anti-treatyite, uh, Mellows was also a member of the, the opposition government, the underground government the anti-treatyites had set up, Joe McKelby, who was the leading Northern member of the anti-treaty IRA, and Dick Barrett, who was kind of a rack-and-file member um, from Cork, they were to be shot, basically in reprisal, so there was no legal justification for it, they'd been captured before the legislation was passed, they couldn't be held responsible for the killing of Sean Hales Mm -hmm. so there was no legality, it was purely revenge killing and it was done to shock it was done to show that the government were hit back twice as hard later on actually one of the reasons we know Owen Donnelly was involved we have better testimony now from the Ernie O'Malley papers but one of the first indications was Eulich O'Connor the playwright wrote a play about this and Sean Caffrey who was an IRA intelligence officer in Dublin told him Owen Donnelly was involved and Ulick O'Connor asked him, Well, what did you think about this? And he says, There's no rules in war. The winners make the rules. Mm-hmm. It's the government came out on top in this competition in terror, if you like. But he's kind of right. You know, war is the opposite of rules. Mm-hmm. Just one final thing though, Dick Barrett, it's often said that there was one shot from each province. But actually, the three from the four courts were in modern sign no-brainers. You know, they're the most prominent anti-treaty they had. Dick Barrett was probably shot because he was involved in a riot a couple of weeks previously in Mountjoy in which three military policemen were killed and he's named in the free state inquiries being the man behind it. the other man behind it was, was actually killed in the riot. so I, I quite suspect that's why Richard Barrett was, was selected. and Pat O'Donnell who was in jail with them at the time in Mountjoy prison, he remembers they were taken out and nobody knew why they were taken out early in the morning by Paddy O'Keefe, who was the deputy governor but the, the real governor of Mountjoy prison and later on at mass. The first was which was the first they heard of it. The prisoners were told they, they had been executed, they'd been killed, and he said, You know, a terrible silence descended on the prison. There was a number of rallies to you know, protested the killings, and they were they were shot at, you know, they were dispersed by the army. It was a very authoritarian time, you know. What I mean, mm-hmm. one other thing in reaction, though, is that the anti treaty version is that the press was totally lined up on the other side, which to, to a degree is true. But one thing that surprised me reading the press at the time was that actually the Irish Independent. Said that this, this is a terrible crime, the yeah, execution, the joy executions. They said this was illegal. They said this is the opposite of why we're supporting the government, we're supporting the rule of law.
0: Which is unusual, it's so different to the expectation you have of the uh, newspaper coverage at the time.
1: Yeah, well, interestingly enough, the one that's really rabidly pro treaty is the Freeman's Journal, which not too long afterwards merged into the Irish Independent, I believe. But the Freeman's Journal says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but good enough for them. They had a coming, kind of thing. You have to meet terror with terror, which Kevin O'Higgins later said. One other thing which is, is very widely known though, which is that Kevin O'Higgins is seen as the hard man. He seems the man who's behind executions, you know, and the the ruthless, the Irish Mussolini, I think, and mm-hmm. think Pat O'Donnell tried to christen him later on. But actually Kevin O'Higgins didn't want to approve the major executions because his friend, Rory O'Connor, uh, was among them. And Rory O'Connor had been the best man at his wedding, so one of his close friends. And he was the last to agree, and he was talked around and around, and according to Wallace Blythe, in the end, O'Higgins said, yeah, take them out and shoot them. I want to address your question about the backbench GDs. So, first of all, after these executions, Lynch widens the orders further. He says, you're to kill members of the murder parliament, as he called it. You're to burn down their homes. You're to burn down their families' homes. You're to burn down the homes of unionists. You're to burn down the homes of the newspaper editors. They could have been more nuanced than a media strategy, actually, I think. There was no other TDs assassinated, but, I mean, there was plans to kill them. You know, it's always written, now. Oh, well, there was no more TDs killed, so they gave up on it. That's not true. The ASU and the Intelligence Department in Dublin were certainly constantly planning to kill TDs. They were constantly planning to kill the likes of Richard Moncaddy. They didn't pull it off. They did kill another pro-treaty politician, though, Seamus uh, Dwyer, who was a prominent pro-treatyite, but he had lost his seat in the election. So, you know, technically he wasn't a TD, but he was gunned down late in December 22 again in reprisal for the executions by a young man named Bobby Bonfield, who, like many of the assassination unit, was a UCD student, medical student. (laughs) But there was a a wave of house burning, so they burned down a lot of houses of TDs and senators. The Senate opened also in uh, late 22. It was basically an arson campaign sweeping across the country. It started in Dublin, but it spread out across the country. The backbench TDs, again, we know from Irish life, a lot of backbench TDs did get them, you know, they did get the wind up at this time, understandably enough. And Blythe tells the story of a guy named Bulfur. I'm not sure where he was the TD for, but he he came in to Cosgrave, who was the, they didn't use the term Tushik at the time, they used the term President. He was the President in uh, the government buildings in in Marion Street, same place there and today. Sorry, excuse me, his letter came in to Cosgrave saying he was resigning in response to these threats, because he feared for his life. Cosgrave dispatched men from the CID, including Joe O'Reilly, who had been a close uh, confidant of Michael Collins and a couple of other gunmen, CID is the feared detective division. They took Wolfman, well, I'm not sure how gently, in a car, and they stopped en route to Dublin. And according to Blythe, Joe O'Reilly gets out and goes, So, excuse my language, but I'm, par, I'm, I'm quoting. Joe O'Reilly says, So, will we shoot the old bastard? And another gunman said, Ah, no, the boss, that's Cosgrave, told us to bring him back to Dublin." Now, this, according to Blythe, this is all for show, and Blythe actually tells it as a humorous story. You can almost imagine him slapping his sides <laughs> as he's saying it. But Bulkin wasn't to know this. I'm sure he was pretty. Yeah, uh, he was pretty traumatized by it. So, according to Blythe, again, Bulkin arrives front of Cosgrave shaking like a leaf. And and Cosgrave greets him with a cigar and a handshake and says, "So, do you still want to resign?" And Bulkin says, "God, no." <laughs> and he was <laughs> and he was put up for his own safety in in a hotel uh, just off Marion Square with a with an armed guard. So there was a number of attempts, but he used to resign. Uh, in protest and the government basically was not having it
0: yeah. you know uh, there were you know there were hard times well, what was the feeling within the anti-treaty IRA to the news that Sean Hales had been assassinated yeah
1: that's a good question so I mentioned before Sean Hales was actually quite well regarded and Sean Hales had not even voted for the the Public Safety Act Sean Hales had a brother Tom Hales and and a brother Donald Hales prominent in the anti-treaty movement so actually people were pretty upset especially in court they were very upset been killed, And even the likes of Todd Andrews, who wrote a memoir about the period, said there was no use shooting decent men like Sean Hills. You know, we should have shot the murder gang, you know, the people that were getting prisoners and so forth. Or we should have shot the members of the government, the cabinet. So people were pretty upset, actually, in the anti-treaty movement. Funny enough, Lawrence Nugent, who was an anti-treaty guy in Dublin, says, you know, he was, he was pretty taken aback by it. He also didn't like the, this thing of proclamations being put up in the street threatening members of the parliament. Liam Lynch, who's the head of the IRA, and De Valera, I should say also the political head of the anti-treaties, didn't like it at all. But at this period, De Valera's in a kind of a wrestling match with Liam Lynch, trying to restrain him. De Valera really does not keen on the Civil War, and Lynch is determined now to prosecute it to its bitter end. Lynch um, made an effort to kind of sell it, if you like, to, to the IRA. So we, He had a report from Frank Henderson, who's by this point is the head of the Dublin Brigade of the IRA. And Henderson says, well, we didn't mean to kill Hales, Hales at all, we went to kill O'Malley." and the intention was only to wound Hales, How I find this kind of unconvincing. You know, if you're going to shoot somebody, they're going to be most likely killed. And he says that, um, you know, they, they misidentified him, they misidentified which one was which, nah, I don't believe that personally, but that's in a report that Henderson sends to Lynch on request and Lynch forwards to the 3rd Brigade in Cork, which is his brother Tom Hale's brigade. Mm. There's quite a bit of disquiet, actually, in the anti-treaty side. And the other thing is that, well, I mentioned that the Intelligence Department and the uh, assassination unit, the so-called Creasing Squad in Dublin, did plan more assassinations and did carry out at least one more. In the wider IRA, even in Dublin, there seems to have been a reluctance. So, for example, Sean Henderson told Ernie O'Malley he could have shot various others. He could have shot... He could have shot Sean McGarry, for example, who was a leading IRB man at pro-TTD because he he was drunk every every day in a pub on Amy Street. So Frank Henderson said... And he didn't do it, and he could have shot various others, and he didn't do it. In the wider IRA,
0: there seems to have been a certain reluctance to do it. Well, I remember reading that part in your article in the Irish Story website, and it struck me as being incredibly reckless after the Hales assassination and after the uh, executions of the four anti-treaty IRA members that pro-Treaty, prominent pro-treaty... Uh, supporters and politicians would continue to uh, go out drinking in the same spots regularly not take those basic precautions it does it does actually yeah i mean actually one word
1: on on, on sean mcgarry because he's another victim of this kind of tragic period so in response to the Montreal executions as i said there was an arson campaign against pro-treaty TDs, senators supporters newspaper people uh, poor sean mcgarry is one of the most tragic victims because mcgarry's house in fairview was burnt by a, a party of IRA men from the second battalion. And his son, his young son, Emmett McGarry, seven years old, was inside and, and died in the blaze. And his his wife was badly injured. And I mean Sean McGarry is visiting him in hospital and he's drinking to drown his Sorrows afterwards. And there was another attempt to assassinate McGarry. So contrary to what Henderson said, they did actually try to kill him and they blew up his shop. He had a shop in the city centre which they later blew up with explosives. Now McGarry is part of this IRB group who the anti treatyites kinda blame for the treaty there's a lot of personal kind of animus there i guess that is quite reckless on the other hand i mean in the wake of all this there was another auxiliary police unit formed called the protective corps and they were put guarding uh, ministers tds supporters around dublin including the likes of for example jenny west power who was the head of the pro-treaty women's group common Assertia, and various other newspaper editors and members of the gentry who the anti-treaty guys kind of took it out on After this point, quite a lot of the pro-Treaty activity, certainly in Dublin, was involved
0: in in protecting their supporters from anti-Treaty attacks. Well, from doing so much research on the anti-Treaty IRA in Dublin, does this strike you as this campaign, as the anti-Treaty IRA have lost their way, that they're out of ideas, or is there brutal logic to the strategy that they're pursuing? When you're talking about the Irish Civil War,
1: There's kind of two ways to think about it. There's what makes sense at the time in the immediate circumstances. So, in the immediate circumstances, there's a certain brutal logic to it, in the sense that, had they been ruthless enough with this, you know, had they really followed through with Lynch's orders and killed everybody who voted for the Public Safety Act, the government could have collapsed, or the government would have been pushed to even more severe measures. But there's a chance the government would have collapsed had they followed through on that. Now, that's true as... Of the anti-treaty campaign as a whole, I mean, whereas it's often depicted as kind of irrational and a type of madness, actually there was there was a plan, which was to wreck the economy, wreck the tax base of the Free State, and it would collapse, and they'd have to renegotiate the treaty. On those tactical terms, you know, on the terms that the likes of Liam Lynch was thinking on, it makes sense. Now, with the civil war as a whole, and with the assassination campaign in particular, step back a little bit from it and it makes no sense at all. I mean, in the sense that these are people who should really be all be on the same side. They've fallen out over, basically a factional disagreement over the treaty. And the logical end result of all this would just be division, disunity, death. It's really not going to achieve anything. The only thing that I'll say in their defence is that once you're in these situations, once you're in a conflict, it's very difficult to take the step back. You know, you probably only see things in terms of
0: winning and losing. And did the Hales family themselves ever write or talk about the Sean Hales assassination? You know, it's funny, like, uh, Donald Hales
1: left a, a witness statement into the Bureau of Military History later on, Donald Hales was an anti-treatyite. And, funny enough, I mean, he mentions some, our poor brother Sean w- was killed, but he, he talks more about the executions, you know, and he, and he lodged pro- letters of protest with the Pope and so forth and tried to encourage the Pope to send an envoy, which he did, uh, Luzio a protest at the executions so I uh, you know, I assume the Hales family grieved in private, but politically they were they happened to be on the other side. One other thing to add, I mean the I've talked about the role of the likes of Michael Carolyn, Owen Donnelly, Bobby Bonfield, people like that, Sean Carpere, people who we now know who were involved. But this was a secret for many, many years. Now the likes of for example, Owen Donnelly never applied for a pension because in the pension statement he would have had to say what he did. In nineteen twenty four Eamon De Valera confidentially, it's in his papers, asks Frank Aiken, by this time the IRA Chief of Staff, who killed Sean Hales. And De Valera is the chief, he's the head of the anti-treaty political movement, and Frank Aiken won't tell him. Frank Aiken writes back, it was the ASU, the active service unit of the Dublin Brigade, and I take full responsibility as Chief of Staff. And he says no more. So we now can piece together who was involved and so forth. No one ever wanted to take the credit, if you like, for it. It was a deep, dark secret for many years. Richard Mulcahy, um, in his papers, there's a long portfolio where he tries to find who did it, and, and he gets nowhere. You know, he has no idea who did it. And basically, he blames Devil De and he traces all things back that Devil Air said about how the doll was illegitimate and so forth. And he says, this legitimized the killing of a TD. But it's one of the Civil
0: War's deep, dark secrets that I think it's, it's time to bring out into the open. Well, thank you very much, John. That was very interesting. And as you say there, the Bureau of Military History statements, a uh, just treasure trove of information and they're all transcribed and online. That's right. Well, thanks very much, John. And as the listeners will know, John's been writing a book and researching for a very long time about the civil war in Dublin. So it's not out yet. It should be out Christmas 2017, do you think? It'll be out before Christmas 2017, yeah all our listeners, you should really keep it okay for that uh, Dublin's Civil War. So, if you want to listen to any previous episodes of the show on our website, that's IrishHistoryShow.ie. You can like us on Facebook on facebook.com forward slash Show, or you can follow us on Twitter at irishhistorypod. My name is Cahal Brennan, and for myself and John Doherty, thanks for listening.